You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. Hi, welcome to uh, Why We Do What We Do. I will be your host, Abraham. And I'm your co-host, Ryan O. And we got our video production assistant, Tyler Bessier, over there in the corner. And uh, so today we are talking about, this is one of the more, I guess, peripheral or it's it's a little bit outside of what you might think of when you're thinking about psychology but i I think it's really important and we both love this area yeah and so uh today what we're talking about specifically is it's called instructional design and so um what that refers to is how academics and like curriculum are arranged specifically for to guarantee or uh, to aim toward particular learning outcomes okay and this is all wrapped up inside of the, a bigger concept called uh, pedagogy, which just has to do with evaluating methods and practices for teaching and delivering instruction. And this is also re- all very related to this concept of learning, which is really central in psychology. Yeah. And, uh, and I think we're going to tackle that at another point, uh, which is a great topic. Yeah. Uh, but whether diving into... Whether it's social learning, like you know, social psych or right. educational psychology... IO psychology, like it's all talked about to some degree. Yeah, yes. yeah. Yeah, learning, I just love that topic. I think it's really cool. Um, but going into like what learning is and all of that, it's actually, believe it or not, uh, beyond really the purpose of what we're up to in this particular episode, um, we're really speaking more toward how you set up instruction or education so that it facilitates this learning process. And then we'll tackle learning um, separately. And it's going to take some, some pre- preparing and making sure we have yeah. all of our ducks in a row because there's... It's just a, it's such a fascinating topic. I really want to make sure we do a great job on it. So let's specifically spend this episode, we're going to focus on this thing called instructional design. And again, just to bring you back to that, what that is, is how you arrange your, your instruction and your curriculum so that you are producing a specific type of outcome. Uh, I'd like to give a little bit uh, of an overview of the kind of people who have really made great contributions to this. And what's awesome is talking about what they found um and you know what kind of principles and and um i guess strategies that we've discovered to make education as effective and as and as efficient as possible i have my own sort of personal interest and i love to hear some of yours as well in that um and as mentioned this before we started recording when i was going through the education system like elementary school hated it middle school hated it high school so hated it. I was like, didn't even <laughs> want to finish. And uh, when I got to college, I actually did enjoy it. But when I got into my psychology classes and I discovered there's this pedagogy, there's a science of teaching and learning, I was like, what? This has been here all along? Like this this type of technology and research and, and science around education has existed since way before I was in school. And apparently just nobody's using it and – or at least it was undetectable by me. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's questionable how much it's really used. No. I, yeah. It seems to be that people are not using this instructional design. They're not using this research and these fantastic and, methods that have been found. Yeah. And I will say one big part of a lot of instructional design is to not blame the learner. So yeah. I would say even in this context, the teacher – like we can't blame the teachers. I really right. think that there was never a good platform built to get this – technology out there there was there was at times where they they kind of got it out there and it was starting to get some traction but at least in modern day tools with social media and all these different things like we're not using those things to carry on this this lineage right no yeah so there's a lot of work to do that as i was saying like yeah as as hard as the experience was going through as a student right Mm -hmm. at the end of the day uh we can't blame the teachers per se like we need to look at the entire system no no that's a great point i'm I'm not trying to point the finger at anyone and it's not even really i guess my reaction's a little unwarranted but when, when i discovered this that this existed i was really interested in learning more about it because i remember thinking as i was going through my education i'm like there's just got to be a better way to do this <laughs> like this this seems like just it's very unpleasant it seems like a terrible system and um yeah this is no you really can't point the finger at any one person or even any one group of people and say this is this is their fault. People have been doing the best that they can with what they knew. With what they knew, but I, I was immediately attracted to this and just wanted to know everything yeah. I could about I re- education and and that sort of thing. I remember uh, actually running into it in a class, and they were like, "This is all you have to do for your grade." And I was like, "Wait, wait, 
that's it. Like, it's that clear. Like, I need to learn this for this grade. <laughs> and I was like, there's got to be a trick here. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't buy this. There's always been like, I have to, you know, uh, grow or learn in a certain way. Or and it was like, it's like this variability, right? Yeah. And it's like what was required. So, um, so you're referring to they, they identified specifically what the outcome was ahead of time? Yeah, they were saying, like, I need you to learn these things. If you learn these things, um, then you're good to go. So, like, for flashcards, it was like, you need to learn your flashcards. You need to be able to say your flashcards at 15 flashcards per minute. Mm -hmm. And when you do that, you get 100%. And, you know, I think I wasn't planning on tying this in, but this does relate to something we're going to talk about later with the IO psychology of a lot of businesses. Like, that, that's the almost the only way that they operate of, like, it's not – that they just teach you arbitrary things, you know, yeah. they, they teach you that when you come in to be trained for a particular job, it's, this is what you need to know to do your job. And when you can demonstrate competence, competency at this thing, then you are, you know, you're the, you're going to be the person who's in charge of this and you're there full time and that's what you do. And even if like, that's not to say that they're just going to respect you. I'm not yeah, trying to yeah. that. But the element of they, they have been relatively well oriented, this very practical approach of knowing exactly like this is what needs to have happen in the circumstance but the education system is just not set up in such a way that they automatically know this is what you have to accomplish like this is what it means to have be educated no one can agree on what that means <laughs> yeah no. uh, at least no one has yet as one of your most foundational starting points what is the outcome of this that's missing yeah on the outset of in terms of uh, what the goals of, of the administration and with the education system so, with all that being said, let's... And I will, yeah, I will say my personal interest in this is... Oh, really yeah, sorry, quick. I meant to tell Yeah, you. that's all right. Um, so, to various degrees, I have a couple different projects, both in paid positions or not paid positions, where I use this sort of thing. Um, and and it's you super, use instructional design? Yeah, a little bit. Like, I, I think I look at it as like a continuum, the degree to which you get to follow the process. So we'll, we'll give an example later, like a very... Uh, a good example of how they get to follow the process very well. Cool. Uh, kind of in the nonprofit world where we get to do as much of it. We do as much of it as we can. Um, so anyhow, uh, that's currently kind of designing some instructional stuff for students with intellectual disabilities in the high school setting. Mm -hmm. um, but I kind of play around with it with different levels and I kind of use it in my life as much as I can. Okay. Um, so uh, can we jump into some of the players yeah, historically? I, yeah, I was thinking the next, the next best step for us to take is discuss uh, who's who's made a big contribution to this field. Um, and keep in mind, there are a lot of people who have been doing research in education, and we're not trying to discount any of them by focusing on the ones that we're focusing on. The reason that we chose these, at least this is my, my understanding um, the reason we chose these, is that these are people that we came in contact with, um, their work, and so we were particularly influenced. And so we felt well prepared to sort of discuss that, knowing full well that there, there are dozens more big players in this field, and um, just that these are a couple that um, we already knew about and yeah. we were familiar with, and we had the resources to, to do a good job explaining them. I'm actually always extremely interested in people sending resources in that related to this. Oh, because yeah. it's hard to find them sometimes. Like, I stumbled across this accidentally sure. through a conference presentation and then asking somebody for some stuff. And I was like, I didn't even know that this area existed. Right. So, yeah, please send them in or, you know, drop them in, whether uh, that's a polite comment or like, hey, you guys forgot this. Right. Whatever it is, drop it in. Yeah, send uh, us some stuff. I'd uh, love to know that. Yeah, yeah. Send us an email, um, whatever. We, we'd love to get some resources and see what other kind of systems. And maybe, you know, in the future we do a follow-up on this and we illuminate some of the other things that people have done. Like I said, we're not trying to exclude anyone on purpose here. It's just these are the ones that we already knew a lot about and yeah. had a lot to say about. So And, yeah. and we found extremely useful is like yeah. the other thing. So one that I think is a nice intro uh, kind of way to get into this area is uh, a guy named Robert Mager. Mager? Mager or Major? Ma I think it's Mager. Okay. <laughs> Following the hard and soft G and C phonetic rule, it would be Major. Okay. But I also always pronounced it Mager, so... It's one of those two. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> um, so he uh, created what was called the six-pack, in quotes. Okay. Um, and basically, it was one book that kind of outlined like everything else that he talked about in the other five books. With a picture of his stomach on the cover. <laughs> yeah. <Just> and kidding. he... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. Six-pack. Yeah, 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 I get you. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, so what he did was he actually started, I think, in the late 60s, and there's iterations for 30 years. Um, so you grab one of those, they're all pretty similar, I've seen different copies, mm -hmm. um, but he actually revised and iterated based on all of them using the actual uh, designs that he talked about in there. So um, essentially what it was is his kind of thing was like, he'd always open it up with uh, the question of, do you have a training problem? 
Mm-hmm. Um, and he works in the business world a lot. And he heard right. that a lot. Like, we have a training problem. And he's like, well, your training problem is a lot of different things probably. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just not that they don't know the skills. It might be that they're not motivated. Right. So he created a lot of tools in there. It's literally six books worth of tools. Yeah. Um, Easy to but, read, though. They're, they're actually like yeah. big text and like it flows really nicely. Super fast. And what I really yeah. liked about it is his first one's kind of like, here's what I'm going to talk about. So give you an idea of like, do you want to read the other five books? Yeah. <laughs> and then from there, uh, each book was taking essentially uh, a fifth of that first book. And he included the principles that he was talking about or the right. process he was talking about. So it's kind of like one of those uh, choose your own adventure books or choose your own <laughs> endings. Um, in a sense that, but it's like database, like right. if you're doing it right. So you read through and if he's like, if you answered this, go to this page. So, um, I distinctly remember it's, going it's actually through more, more like a diagnostic tool <laughs> that it's not, it's not like there's, you know, th- this is, this is how you teach this particular, you know, and then, yeah, 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 yeah. or you could teach like this. It's, it's more like, you know, what are the circumstances that are, that a particular type of instruction are going to be best for? Yeah. So, yeah. Thanks. Thanks for clarifying. Yeah. I just want to make sure it didn't seem, it was just sort of like. I'm going to go around and I'm going to taste all these different types of instruction. It reminded me of those types of books. Let's say that. Yeah. So uh, what I distinctly remember is I read through the first book. I was like, this sounds really exciting. I jumped in the second. And as I got through the other books, there were some that were, I remember one being about a 45 minute read because there was a lot of things where I answered the questions correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was kind of like, hey, you you understand this part of it. But there was others that I had to read through the whole book because um, I didn't really have the tools and understand the tools in those. Yeah. So he was the first one I went through. Who's next? Uh, so the next one, and I love this guy, um, he had, uh, his name is uh, Siegfried Engelman. And he was uh, also, as I understand the history, just really frustrated with the state of the um, education system in, in the United States. And he really believed that there was a definite way, at least my understanding of this, there was a definite way that you deliver instruction that is the most effective way to do it. And he was out to find that way. And he um, tested, I mean, from my understanding, just hundreds of iterations of, of the best way to sequence instruction by putting them in actual classrooms, giving them to teachers, having them implement it, and looking for breakdowns, and then fixing it. Yep. And his whole system was based on this premise that like, you, uh, you, d- you deliberately set up exactly what you need to teach, and then you march through it in a step-by-step order where every lesson that you teach is a foundation for the next lesson you're going to teach, and everything just builds off of these um, these lessons in a really congruent fashion. Like, it just it proceeds forward, and, like, you read it, and you're like, well, yeah, of course you do it that way, but yeah. no one does it that way. <laughs> so anyway, um, he called this direct instruction. And there's a whole bunch of books and uh, curriculum sequences that are still available that he created that you can purchase. They're, they're being regularly revised, I believe, and updated. Um, there's like the Distar, I think it's called, like reading instruction. There's math instruction. There's one big line called SRA. I forget what it stands for. Right. Anything from SRA uh, has direct instruction built into it. Yeah, we got a ton of those books at, at work. Um, yeah. yeah, so uh, – and he wrote this book called Theory of Instruction um, – and it is a subtitle, um, yeah. but, uh, it is like a thousand page tome. Yeah. It's, it's a big <laughs> book. And, and this was the sort of foundation for how he, uh, his philosophy around instruction. And for the most part, like I said, this, this was pretty empirically based, which is to say that he did a lot of playing around with some of these variables of like how to do really good instruction. And, um, so what, well, what were the, some of the critical components that he found were really useful in delivering instruction? So one thing was having like an active student responding and being mm-hmm. able to like really, um, measure that like in the moment. Yeah. So one way that that's done is through choral responding. Okay. So that would be everybody at the same time is saying something. So there's usually a cue. Um, I actually use this when I'm teaching much more like complex concepts and group formats. So like a cue, like a, like a signal, like, yes. yeah. Yeah, so for example, I will say um, some effect of like this is a certain type of chart mm-hmm. when I'm working with people. And I'll ask them to I'll kind of orient them to the process of I'm going to say it, I'm going to cue you guys, maybe something like I'm going to point to the whole group. Yeah. And when I point to the whole group, then they answer in unison together what the answer is. Now, the way that works is uh, I've got feedback essentially on every learner, right, mm-hmm. as to whether or not they understand it or not. Um, but it also creates that like uh, kind of rule that uh, you also need to actively engage with the content. Right. So there's kind of two parts there is how I look at it. Yeah. So the 
and this really stands in contrast to the idea that a lot of learning happens just by having someone talk at you. So actually this podcast stands in direct contradiction to <laughs> that model because if you're sitting here passively just listening to what we're saying and I'm not asking you to do anything and you're not doing anything with the knowledge I'm giving you, you're far less likely to retain a significant portion of it and um, and be able to apply it to anything else. Yeah. So the one of the major components is like for every aspect of the lesson, the, the student is doing something. They have to do something, and that uh, one of the examples you give is core responding. That's you know going to be the whole group is going to be responding to things. Sometimes they're uh, at, along with the lesson, they're writing something or yep. they're pointing or whatever it is. They're constantly engaging with the uh, the curriculum and the academic materials yep. for that lesson. Yeah, yeah, and I will, yeah, I will say to kind of continue off that. Like if you caught me in a workshop based model, like it's complete opposite of a podcast. Yeah, we're doing things the whole time now. The way we're doing things is it's, it's very interesting and it's kind of individualized and those sort of things too. Right. Um, but yeah, you, these things are very hard to capture in a podcast format. They are. That's um, true. Which, yeah. And I'd hoped that at some point we'd build in a more interactive component. Um, we talked about doing like a live stream where people could yeah. write in and we could ask them and yeah, or we, we should, could answer questions. Yeah, we definitely should have tested those out and had some feedback yeah. by the time this releases. So yeah. It'd be fun to kind of look back on those. Exactly. Um, there's some other components we didn't necessarily mention. There's one that I think that's very important to bring up, and that's the scripted presentation. Oh, yeah. Right? And this is one that could be a point of kind of contention for educators, and it yes. has in the past. Yeah, people don't how's, like this. <laughs> so how does that work? Well, um, so in, in the books, in the direct instruction books, the SRA, the DISTAR, all of these books that have been created, it has a specific script that the teacher is supposed to read. And then it also has potential answers that they might get from their students. So the uh, the script, like the teacher, really isn't supposed to do anything except follow what the book tells the teacher to do. And again, this stems from this, um, this view that there is a correct way of teaching something. And if you practice it enough times, you'll find like this is the sequence of, of instructions that is the most effective for this particular math lesson or this particular mm -hmm. reading concept. And so it's like, don't mess around with like coming up with your own personal flavor of it. Just do it right the first yeah. time. <laughs> and, uh, that and reminds me of a skit on, you ever watched show the office? No, sorry. Um, well, there's the, the I'm scene. I'm sure our listeners do. Okay. The, <laughs> there's a scene where, um, the, the character Angela's crunches. I feel so stupid. And he's like, you're not stupid. Jazz is stupid. And she's like, jazz is stupid. Just play the right notes. <laughs> and the reason that's related is, is like, you know, there's this jazz feel of just do whatever is your own personal style with teaching. And, and Engelman's approach is a lot more like, well, there's an effective way to do this. And then there's your own personal style. Yeah. And so these are kids whose future is at stake here. Let's do the effective way and you can do your own style in front of a mirror or something <laughs> where it's safe and no one's going to yeah, yeah, I've always found it interesting that uh, certain areas like Matthew you reference, like it's a little more agreed upon of like what the prereqs are, what you need to teach, the order in, right? Mm -hmm. We're not going to be teaching division before we've taught addition subtraction. Most general teachers agree with that. Yeah. Um, but when it comes to things that uh, I think what it is is just areas that we haven't examined as much. Um, that's the areas where the personal flavor is more ingrained in kind of the teacher culture. Um, and I get that. There's a lot of like natural rewards for doing those sort of things. But his mm -hmm. thing was, let's really step back and look at that and question that and see if there's a faster way to do it. And one cool example that I'm going to link in this is he's got a video example um, where he was working. Uh, like with... he's in the video? Yeah. Cool. I don't think I've... you haven't seen this? No. So... Yeah, it is. I don't know when it is. I think it's in the 70s or 80s. Okay. I want to see this now. <clears throat> Essentially, he wanted to pretty much prove that you could work with like some of the quote-unquote harder kids to teach. Mm -hmm. So he's working with some inner-city children. They are in uh, pre-K or kindergarten, and they're doing the basics of algebra. Okay. Um, and that was because he worked with them through this process and kind of taught them that. So wow. it is a video, uh, really uh, poor... Uh, audio and video, uh, sure. but it is like uh, kind of state-of-the-art back then, and it is proof of what he could kind of teach through this process. It's really amazing to watch. Cool. Um, the best part when you when you check it out is how into it the kids are. Sure. They are so into the process. Like yeah. They are standing up out of their chairs, chairs yelling and screaming answers, just yeah. like excited yeah. and trying to beat each other at these sort of things. Which is great. Yeah. So, um, And just to go back, one of the points you made about the fact that everyone sort of agrees there's sort of a general progression about how you go out teaching math, and that's, that's true. 
but with the direct instruction approach, it's also more specifically like this is how you go about creating those lessons and teaching those concepts in a way that's going to be the most efficient for teaching future math concepts. So you teach yeah. math in this recipro reciprocal relation of adding and subtracting. Uh, that That's a relation that uh, the related processes. And so um, you look at how those uh, it, you know, if you can teach the, the concept of, of adding and subtracting by giving examples and non-examples and, and systematically working through those processes, then you can see that kids start applying it. And it's not just teaching them one problem at a time mm -hmm. or even like one type, one concept of just like, this is subtraction. It's when you take away. All right, this is addition. Okay. It's when you add. Moving on. It's yeah. actually like, let's practice this. Like, show me that when you take away, you can now add it back on and you're back at the value you used to have. Yeah. And like, and really having them engage in that, that process. So. Yeah. And I will say like, even this process can easily be embedded into concepts like project-based learning, which mm -hmm. are, uh, have been gaining a lot of traction for various degrees in different states for a lot of years. Cool. Um, but those, those things that are kind of like not only hot, uh, items like project-based learning, but that are also, um, I think really cool things that could be. Uh, blended with like direct instruction. Cool. So I will say that for any any teachers listening to this. Like, yeah. Do that work. That would be awesome to see these things kind of combined. Yeah. Um, and now I guess going back to this idea of the scripted instruction, um, there there is a little bit of flexibility in this in that a lot of times it's that you have to these these key concepts and there can be an art to this in a way where you have to be sensitive to sort of where your learner is at. Yeah. Um, I found, and now most of the time they do a pretty good job of actually building in, this is how you check for like their progress. And there's like a step for remediating mm -hmm. if they're not where they need to be based on where the lesson is. Um, but it, there is still a little bit of level of sensitivity of just acknowledging where you need to be in relation to where your student is and then how you sort of gauge um, the kind of interaction. And one example, actually, I think that's really good, strong on this is that there are certain students that we get in, in at least where, where I'm at, where they're a little bit older and you don't need some of the most basic concepts all as small as they are. You yeah. can, you can just teach them in larger groups is basically what it comes down to. So, cool. um, I guess the, uh, most people who've never heard of this direct instruction thing, or if they have, they haven't heard of it the way we've been talking about it. Yeah, yeah. Because a lot of people think of direct instruction, they simply mean that you are in per person or something, or yeah. Yeah, it might there, just there, mean something else. But. There is two types uh, that are referenced out there. Okay. Um, and so, the, the yeah, the type we're referring to has to do specifically with Siegfried Engelman and the work that he's done. But there is some evidence for this being a pretty effective, <laughs> besides the fact that like we've used it and we know it works, and we've like he's got these books out there. You want to describe some of the evidence? Yeah. Yeah, so essentially he and everyone involved in this, because, you know, the teachers and everybody was working on this, yeah. um, built this up. It was actually included in a study called Project Follow-Through. Essentially what happened was, I believe it was the late 60s, 70s, they started getting this together. All in all, like 20, 25 years at least, and it was a billion-dollar study. The largest educational study to date, I think, still. Pro probably going to remain that way for a while. That's, that's, a, that's a pretty big chunk of change. <laughs> yeah. And uh, essentially what they did is they loosely like, do you, have a, do you have an idea on how people learn and how we can teach mm -hmm. and submit proposals? There was, I think, 11 or 12 proposals that came in. Right. And direct instruction across all measures. Oh, it's um, possible that more came in, but there was, there was like 11 or 12 that ended up yeah, receiving grant money. Yeah. Yeah. Out of the... Uh, out of those, direct instruction was the only one that consistently across all other measures uh, pro produced positive outcomes. Uh, there was two others that produced some positive outcomes in various different areas, not to yeah. the degree that direct instruction did. Right. At the end of the day. Um, and so what, what were some of those those domains? I actually know that there was uh, math, like reading, self-esteem was some measures they were interested in, cognitive growth. I believe if I remember the the, the summary correctly – the government ended up going with the projects that were specifically oriented toward self-esteem growth and not necessarily their academic growth. But even even those, like those effects were seen more in the direct instruction model. Yeah. Like on those measures. Right. My understanding was that there was a lot of politics involved, but at the end of the day, the funding was kind of allocated towards the ones that weren't as good to try to make them better. Okay. But <laughs> there, I will, I will say, like, there was so much politics for years involved in this. And sure. they, like, went back. I know they hired Stanford researchers to, like, go back and look at the data. Mm -hmm. There's books on just that process right. itself. 
And I know there were some problems with the data collection on this. And this, you know, the the point of this episode isn't to spend a lot of time on project follow through, but just what's crazy is the overall outcome is that direct instruction, like significantly, and I mean, not even statistically significantly, far beyond that, it it vastly outperformed every other type of instruction on, as I recall, every measurable dimension that they looked at. And so, and they did it again and it happened. This, the next time it did the same thing and they just kept repeating and getting the same outcome and they're just like yeah we're not going to go that way yeah. <laughs> it'd be like um, my only goal is to get a car where I have efficient gas mileage and I like I try out a Hummer and a Tesla and like a <laughs> Nissan Leaf and then I'm like you know I think I'm going to go with the Hummer because uh, yeah because yeah <laughs> And as you said, there's politics involved, but it's just it's surprising because um, oh, I, know what I was going to say is that some of the elements of the study, and I think it's important to point out, like this study was pretty poorly done. Um, the there was very little in the way of actually like getting good integrity around how these educational things were being implemented. So it's not really clear whether or not the teachers who were doing these were always doing them right. Um, the measurement that was in place wasn't particularly objective it relied on a lot of subjective measurements so it's i think there's a lot of criticism of the whole project because there was so little in place to ensure that the data could be interpreted well and um but nevertheless like it's it was interesting that they just kept getting the same sort of outcome maybe everyone was you know just being paid off but if, if they were clearly it wasn't enough because it didn't end up being the method that was selected yeah, so there is, uh, I just referenced, referenced it real quick. There was 22 different approaches that were looked at. Oh, 22. Wow, that's a lot more than I thought. There was, yeah, they're not included on that graph. That's the one I was like kind of imagining. Like, oh, okay. That, that summary graph. Right, I had a lot less people. Okay, I was thinking of that um, thing too. 200,000 students were involved in it, and it was uh, really looking at approaches to teach at-risk children grades uh, kindergarten through three. Okay. Um, overall, 178 different communities involved across the United States. So okay. it's very large. Yeah. Here it is. Oh, yeah. Sweet. So we got some of the, the metrics by which it was being compared. So there was... So they looked at basics, cognitive, and affective. Okay. And out of uh, this one chart, we'll link this chapter, um, it was literally direct instruction that produced positive outcomes in those three areas. Okay. Uh, no, other, no other area, including some of the other ones that were actually kind of influenced by similar principles yeah. actually produced results across all three of those areas basic cognitive and affective right um and a lot of them actually produced negative results which were that are still around right that are very much still around so it was like we found this instructional method that actually makes you much worse at this skill and that is the one we are going to choose so yeah <laughs> um i guess where do we kind of go from this like get out of this rabbit hole yeah sorry um, we got way off on a tangent of that so I think one way to get out of that is like there's there's still these materials out there. One yeah. that I really think that is cool that he put out there is like a twelve dollar book um, called uh, "How to Teach Your Child to Read in Like Hundred Easy Lessons." Yeah, or something like that, right? Well, I often heard referred to as just one hundred easy lessons, but yeah. I love that book. Yes, it's so cool. Um, and it looks a little weird at first. Like they actually, uh, the basically his research showed if you alter uh, your alphabet to include more letters than what's actually included in the English alphabet. Initially, you can teach the different sounds mm-hmm. uh, that the different uh, letter combinations make, and then you can fade that throughout those 100 lessons mm-hmm. to where it's actually a much faster way for children to learn how to read phonetically. Right? Yeah. I've seen this um, work in some pretty remarkable circumstances, too. Like people yeah. that I was like, they're never going to read. Yeah. And it was like two months later they were reading. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I actually had monthly check-ins um, with a student that I was working with in Florida, mm-hmm. the uh, speech and language pathologist. Uh, Missed a month um, because of some things came up, totally reasonable. Okay. Came back a couple months later and she's like, how in the hell is this kid reading? Yeah. And I was like, oh, it's the first time I tried this book, but it seems like it worked pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> um, and she loved it. She picked it up and ran with it in a few different places. And I was just like, she's like, where'd you find this? And I was like, just a professor. Like, yeah. <laughs> I didn't know it was out there either. Yeah. Um, yeah. And same thing. It like literally produced like life-changing outcomes. Yeah. Um, it's, for it, that student. I love this stuff. So, all right, we went way down a rabbit hole. Let's go ahead and move on to uh, uh, there's another couple of people that did some just really cool work and and good instructional design and like understanding how to arrange instructional content. 
So uh, Phil Tiemann and Susan Markle. And they created two different books Okay. Um, that are kind of like the go-tos. They had a lot of different stuff that's out there. Mm -hmm. They had Analyzing Instructional Content and then Design for Instructional Designers. I have both of those books. Yes. Both of them were great. They're kind of manuals on like how to learn why this stuff would be useful. Yeah. Um, one thing that I really liked is they broke down um, different types of skills and how to understand how to teach different types of skills. Brilliant. Um, in the fastest ways, mm -hmm. which was very nice for someone that's out there is trying to create some sort of instruction or like working on a training problem and there's not really a go-to solution out there, at least yeah. for their organization, like use this to create that solution for your organization. Yeah, and um, what's, what's so cool about the book too is they specifically set it up as if the reader was a student learning their process. So they have some of the active student responding built into the text where you have to like, you have to fill in like you fill in answers from previous content from earlier in the book yeah. and you have to generate new content for the concept that they're talking about in the book. It's just, it's so cool. I love the way yeah. that book's set up. Yeah. And one thing that both them and uh, Mager or Major really taught me was to pay attention to like how you lay things out and how you present things. Mm -hmm. So if this isn't quite making sense, like how you present things can be so important. Sure. Um, so when it comes to like our instructional materials, for example, in the program that I'm working on, we have certain colors and things that are uh, set up to cue mm -hmm. certain uh, responses from the students. Mm -hmm. So we walk them through those sort of things up front for five minutes at the beginning, but then I never have to orient them to that again. And what it is is like little prompts and things like that on the page. Okay. But just after that five minutes of instruction, automatically cue the sort of behavior that we're looking for. Nice. Um, forever. Forever, like right. we, we work with them for six months, and they just it works. <laughs> nice. So it was kind of the spacing and like how things are presented is what I really pulled from those. Right, and they give you specifics for all types of skills. Yeah, there's and uh, it's worth mentioning. There's some really interesting research on other like little techniques that you can do as a student, and actually just because you mentioned it, spacing is one of them. Um, where they talk about this like sort of chunked and spaced practice. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of emerging research about. Uh, how when you're learning something new, the best way to retain the most amount of information. But um, we'll, we'll probably uh, tackle that at a later time, especially when we, we, that's in part of the sort of cognitive psychology literature. So sure. yeah, when we get into that, we can talk about it. All right. Good on Team and Markle. Yeah. Uh, right. Good books. I guess we don't have as much to say about them as we did Project Follow Through, but no. uh, they're really they're really great and super informative. And as you said, uh, I love that they they broke down this element of considering what kind of skill you're teaching. Mm -hmm. And something else that's pretty uniform across all of these, and I just, I find this to be one of the simplest and yet one of the most important things you can do when you're teaching is to specify what the outcome is, is to set your learning objectives for it. Yeah. Um, and I sort of am saying that now because that segues nicely into who we're going to talk about next. <laughs> yeah, so the next one uh, was actually some folks that kind of picked up the team in a Markle approach and right. then kind of expanded a little bit. All right, so what they had uh, is they created this thing called the Nonlinear Instructional Design Process. A very long name. Um, yeah. But essentially what it was is there's a reference that I'm going to share with this episode uh, by Janet Twyman, Joe Lang, Greg Steichleather, and Kelly Hobbins. Um, now, there's a lot more people that have worked on this, um, but that's the main reference I'm going to put out there because it's accessible. And they essentially had six steps. So the idea was uh, you have something that you're going to teach and then you go through these six steps. Right. So the first one was a content analysis. What, mm -hmm. do, you do, what do you do in a content analysis, Abraham? Uh, well, you need to identify the scope of the material that you're going to be covering um, and all of the critical components of that material. Cool. So I go through and I do that. And then my next step would be I create these instructional objectives. Yeah. So an, ob an objective isn't uh, we'll learn how to behave appropriately or we'll learn how to do X, right? Sure. Like they're very explicit. Well, let's give a well, let's give an actual an actual example. Yeah. Um, so when I'm teaching, I my very first uh, when I'm using PowerPoint, the very first thing I put up, and this might be the only thing that's up on the on the whole time, mm -hmm. is um, it says at the end of this presentation you will be able to, and then it just lists a bunch of things that they should be able to do, and. Uh, so the, the objectives really specify um, that they should be able to either uh, explain uh, the answer to a particular question or they should be able to list uh, the relevant. So like 
uh, list the critical components of Maslow's hierarchy of needs or something yeah, like that, yeah. you know, um, when I'm teaching Psych 101. Yeah. And, uh, but I specifically say like this, uh, I, I tell them this is exactly what you should be able to do at the end of this class. Perfect. Yeah, and those things are measurable, right? Which segues into the third uh, area, which is criterion tests. Is yeah. So you have a test that will be able to tell you whether or not you met your objectives, right? Yeah, that's, that's basically all there is really to it. simple. You've identified what the target outcome is, and so all you have to do is have a way of measuring that that uh, outcome is occurring. Yeah, now, yes, perfect. So the, the fourth step in this, so we had content analysis, instructional objectives, criterion tests. The next one is one that I think is skipped a lot, um, or it can easily be kind of overlooked, and that right. is the entry repertoire, as I call it. Right. So it, what does a learner need to have to be able to enter even in and be successful at learning these objectives, right? Yeah. So it's just a basic assessment of where is the student um, in, re in relation to uh, the curriculum that you're trying to teach them. Yes. Now, once you have those, you can jump into the fifth step, which is actually creating your instructional sequence, mm -hmm. right? It kind of seems like that's where you normally would have started, um, and because that's kind of what they experience first, right? Yeah. Is being in the sequence, but they do not suggest going in that order. They actually no. suggest going in the order that we talked about. So, what we have is our content analysis, instructional objectives, criterion tests, entry repertoire, our instructional sequence, and then lastly, our performance data. Yeah. And what do we do with that performance data? Uh, well, we want to evaluate how well they are doing with respect to the target outcome and uh, how quickly they're progressing, see if there's any stumbling blocks, things that have gotten in the way, um, how well this maintains over time, and then also how well it generalizes across uh, new lessons and new curriculum areas, right? Yes, exactly. Um, so to kind of give an example of the way that we do this is I work at a, a organization now where we're working on teaching students in high school with intellectual or developmental disabilities, mm -hmm. um, basically about kind of resources and self-advocacy steps um, for them after they graduate high school. Mm -hmm. So uh, we broke down all the different areas like self-advocacy and things like that into uh, this process. So we started with a content analysis, kind of created our objectives. So something like uh, identifying five resources in the area that are available to you after you graduate high school. Okay. Very clear objective. At right. the end of the module, we can test whether or not that they know those through our tests. Um, our entry repertoire is a little bit harder because we're kind of, we need to get this to all these students under sure. this condition. Um, so that is a good example of how I was saying, like I can't quite follow all the steps exactly, um, but we do the best that we can. Um, but, and then what we do is we went through our first round of instructional, uh, sequence and kind of testing. Mm -hmm. Now we're going through revisions, uh, for version 1.2 based on the performance data that came in. Cool. So, uh, it's in one way then in which we're kind of using it. Yeah. Cool. So, so that's what's, <laughs> what's next. Wow. We just laughed and said so and did everything all in unison. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So. That's That really covers the basics of sort of who has been a major contributor, at least, again, some of the people that have been major contributors to our understanding of education and academics, and also sort of a summary of the work that they've done. And I think it's useful then to turn to, or at least to consider, uh, why do we care about yeah. any of this? Especially in the face of this doesn't seem to be very widely adopted. Um, you know, Why do we want to know? What's, what's the interest there? Yeah, so uh, I've got a few different kind of things that uh, came to mind when I was drafting up for this episode. So the original kind of instructional design programs and like PhD programs, things like that, and things like that, were uh, influenced off this literature. The degree to which they're still in there, um, I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that could vary, as we know, like those things vary all over the place. Sure. Um, but it was kind of embedded originally. Now another area um, is I think the especially with technology just exploding, like all of this stuff like was created primarily before any of this technology explosion. And by that, I mean like the tools and gadgets and, you know, the internet and all those sort of things. Yeah. So uh, I think areas like anyone that's in design or is a designer to some extent or into UX, like user experience um, and how that, w any of those kind of spinoffs of creating that sort of content I think this would blend really well with their field. And I think there's actually a lot of low-hanging fruit of like combining these sort of things into those sort of roles because it's very much thought of as like there's this creative design process um, or certain ways, you know, in which you kind of, you got to kind of like feel for like um, how people uh, 
engage with certain content. Whereas like this has kind of shown us like if you do things a certain way, there's a really efficient way that usually shows up. Right. Yeah. And actually that reminds me a few years ago, you and I were at a conference that was a specifically an education oriented conference. And there was a representative there or somebody who worked at the video game company of Bungie. Yes. And it was so cool to hear him talk about how they use a sort of an instructional design approach to design video game experience uh-huh. and was really speaking to us of like, you know, there's a lot of opportunities for collaboration in that you guys know a lot about instructional design, um, you know, these people who are in this academic field, um, and you know a lot about how to organize content in a particular way, and we know a lot about making people have fun. And, yeah, you know, yeah. Let our, let's let our let's, powers combine yes. <laughs> for Captain Instruction. Um, yeah, it's <laughs> actually an area that I'm like, not that specific area in gaming, but like those yeah. combinations, like that's the thing I'm extremely interested in and as i understand it things happen that was how to make that happen right as i understand it like that sort of idea of collaboration was sort of how uh schoolhouse rock um came (laughs) came to be was this idea of you know Uh make it fun make it engaging and and make it something that is a little bit novel and tie in these these elements where it's not just the one way of delivering instruction but you have multiple modes of of getting people engaged and especially when you're making it fun and interactive and you uh really collaborate on this deliberate sequence of how to uh teach things yeah yeah, so let's jump into one specific case example real quick. Okay. So there's this program called Head Sprout Reading Program. Or Mimeo or something else. Yeah, and it's been yeah, it's been passed around uh, after it was created and sold a few different times. So it's currently under A to Z learning. Basically, yeah, it's not a huge project on their site, but it's done some really cool things. So um, remember I said like the the idea of this like design process isn't necessarily intuitive. Like you normally just kind of like, what do I need to teach? And you jump in, you create an instruction, and then mm-hmm. you create your tests. And they were saying, you need to, no, 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 you go back in those steps in a certain order. You got to do your content analysis first, et cetera. So, well, and I think the, the, to back up, the premise of this was that this was supposed to be an entirely computer-based education software. Yeah, uh, so software. What I was, yeah, so what I was going to get at, yeah, exactly, was they challenged themselves with a really cool question. Um, mm-hmm. And that was, could we teach someone to read without ever hearing or seeing them? Yeah, right. Like, that's crazy. That's a really – that's a huge challenge. Like what do you do? I think if I were in that position, you know, my immediate answer was you just can't. Yeah. There's no way to do yeah. it, you know. Um, but fortunately, these people had more vision and, than I do. And what it was is it was in uh, the late 90s, early 2000s and this was like when the, you know, the, the dot-com and the web was coming together and there was a lot of tools. Yeah, the World Wide were, Web. Yes. <laughs> the information superhighway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All the pipes and tubes, right? <laughs> Um, it was when there was a lot of interest in those sort of things, mm-hmm. um, and creating learning opportunities or creating business opportunities to help people and to create really valuable products on that platform. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what it was is there was a lot of big players, but there was a group of about 22 or so people okay. that came together, um, including those people that I referenced earlier that created that nonlinear instructional design uh, resource that we're going to link. Mm-hmm. Um, and they went through this process with that. And essentially what they came down to... And by process, you mean those six steps? Yeah, those six steps. So mm-hmm. content analysis, instructional object- objectives, criterion tests, entry repertoires, instructional sequence, performance data. So I got some highlights from that. Would it be fair to call the entry repertoire like entry repertoire assessment? Would be Because the rest of them refer to like something that that the instructors are doing and the, the fourth one. Just yeah. Like, and what it is, yeah. And what it is, so they, these 22 people all interdisciplinary working together. Um, there was a few that were really well trained in instructional design. There's mm-hmm. a lot of different designers, folks who are helping the coding, all that sort of stuff. Right. And what they did is they went through this process, I believe somewhere around like 500 times to get to their final product. That's a lot of times. Somewhere around like three and a half years. And these are all things that I've heard from those creators very different, various different times. So I'm probably off a little bit on the numbers. I don't think I've um, ever tried anything 500 different ways. Yeah. Except and, maybe Candy Crush. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, that is why, yeah, like the, the entry repertoire was identified through going through this process a lot. Mm-hmm. And what I thought was really cool is, um, so to get back to like, how do you teach someone to read? without ever hearing and seeing them? Well, the answer is through mouse clicks. Mm-hmm. Um, and what it was is those mouse clicks were the way to measure the performance data. And they identified things through watching the students and doing these kind of early assessments of mm-hmm. like what the students actually had in their skill sets prior to identify some things like the entry repertoire. So 
Uh, that actually turned out to be that you need to have the language skills of a typical four-year-old child. That was the first one. Okay. Uh, and this is an English-based program, I must say. Um, the next was psychomotor skills to move and click a mouse. And the last one was like some rudimentary understanding of the concepts of first, next, last, and not. So you needed sort of a sequence and then an, uh, a counterexample sort of thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and if you had those skills, then you, uh, and after they went through all these iterations, yeah. if you sit down and go through the program um, with those, you have a 92% success rate of learning how to read and comprehend what you're reading without any additional uh, input or help That's outside impressive. of, you know, the teacher turning the computer on and logging in. That's, that's so, a good way to spend your time. Yeah, I've actually had the opportunity to start this in like a classroom sequence twice. What was mm -hmm. very cool is, um, and the way it kind of works is, when you start it up and everyone's doing the, everyone begins at the same place mm -hmm. at the beginning of the sequence. They quickly test to make sure that the interrupt wire is there, and then immediately, based on error patterns, adjust the curriculum for the learner. Mm -hmm. So if they error a certain way, it starts uh, essentially think of it as a big decision tree process, mm -hmm. right? As errors happen, those are identified, and then through all those iterations that they did, they determined what needs to be presented to be able to help the learner get over those, right? Um, and with this, they've reached about 3 million people, a little over 3 million people to date, um, which is a significant amount, but at the end of the day, there's a lot of kids that are learning out there that do not contact this, right? All right. Um, so that's where the whole marketing world comes into play. Yeah. And uh, I just look at it as like the instructors built into this program. Um, it required a ton of resources to pull off, but relative to like, uh, relative to like what they created, like it wasn't that resource intensive. Like, yes, we're talking about millions of dollars and lots of people here. Um, but when it comes to like teaching kids how to read and like having a final product that mm -hmm. no longer needs a teacher, that's pretty cool. Yeah. It's pretty cheapish, like on a society level. Yeah. What's great about this is this whole idea of when you are creating materials, especially thinking about the outcome for the society, for the culture, for those people, and how mm -hmm. often there are people who just don't have access to the resources that they need and that because they don't have this access, they're just so much less likely to be able to make meaningful contributions. They might be less successful. They might have a lower quality of life. Mm -hmm. And that's not necessarily to say that they will. But just providing people this simple tool that they just make it you know, as available as possible to as many people as possible, it's not realistic to assume that we can train the best teachers in the world and send them out and reach every student. Yes. But there are – it is so much more likely that we could – to be able to create a system – that could be implemented anywhere with the same amount of fidelity. It's more cost effective. It will reach more people. It can be replicated more easily. It's it's a great idea, I and think, it, to really disseminate the technology of teaching that has been developed. Yeah, and to kind of extrapolate on like where this could go. Uh, so earlier I was mentioning some things that are like the technology world, world like user experience and design and those sort of things. Mm -hmm. One of the VPs on the Headsprout program is that was actually, and I believe still is, uh, the director of machine learning for Amazon. So, what does that mean? Uh, machine learning, just think about uh, creating programs that learn and adapt on their own. Okay. So, so the fact that every time I go on Amazon, it's like, hey, you'd probably want to buy this book. Um, yeah, the degree to which uh, he influenced that, I don't know for sure, but okay. that should be a good application. Like, I can't say okay. for sure that that was... Yeah. You know, but like, yeah, it was the things that we interact with daily that are kind of like influencing what content we see on websites like that. Mm -hmm. um, that process can be influenced by this, cool. right? Like there's yeah. actually like the director of this whole department, Amazon, like was part of the Headsprout program. That's pretty cool. Um, so I think there's, uh, if you're still hanging with us and you're like, I don't know about this stuff, like, mm -hmm. and you're on one of those kind of... Uh, Areas that aren't necessarily in psychology, mm -hmm. right? Like, definitely worth checking out. It's pretty cool. Um, okay, so where does that leave us? Well, you know, I was actually sort of segueing it or trying to segue to this idea of uh, why why should psychology care? What is, how is this related to psychology? 
why do you as the listener care? <laughs> that sort of thing. And like I said, part of what's cool about this is that we can use these tools to develop effective technologies that we reach a lot of people. And in addition to that, we can create these tools that we're better at teaching ourselves. We're better at uh, designing our school environments. We're better at supplementing those school environments. Like there's, I think there's a lot um, that this contributes to in educational psychology. Um, this is very relevant. I mentioned earlier the business world. Um, and this stuff is all very critically relevant to teaching in or, uh, industrial and organizational psychology. Uh, there's, there's, there's a lot more – there's a lot that this has to say about what psychology can do and how psychology can be effective at helping to, to teach people and um, you know, allow them to be – or give them the tools to be very efficient and very successful in particular settings. Yeah. Yeah, I also think of like uh, teaching sequences in sports. That's a huge area oh, yeah. in the U.S. world <laughs> or everywhere. Yeah, yeah, there's a whole like sports training is its own like living, breathing sort of mm-hmm. field. Yeah. That's kind of a pun, I guess. Field, <laughs> uh, well, area of, of expertise, I guess, where, where people make their career yeah. out of doing this. And they, they also are going to employ some of the instructional design yeah, uh, technology. One one area I think that's also uh, got a lot of room for this sort of work is teaching scientists how to do science, right? Yeah, like absolutely. Teaching psychologists how to do psychology, like we could create programs all around that. Yeah, training the trainers, sort of thing. Out. So there's a lot of different areas that this can apply. I mean, this this can apply to you personally. You can use this to help design. I think one thing that occurs to me is there are people who are often take have this approach of I, I didn't learn this so I can't learn it. There are a lot of people who are like I never got good at math mm-hmm. so I'm I'm I can't be good at math. And if you just have a systematic approach, you can really learn just about anything. Yeah. And there are a lot of people who, you know, at some point in their lives decide to sort of reinvent themselves and they develop a totally new set of school skills and they become really really good at it. And if you have really good instructional design around that, then that's something that you can sort of do. Yeah. I think that's a great, yeah, great way to end. Like you can use it in your own day-to-day life, self-management. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. goes back to some of the other things we've talked about. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. So that wraps us up on instructional design. Yeah. Appreciate you hanging around for this episode. I know it was a little bit of a longer one. Um, Just want to reiterate the point as we're signing off here. Um, if you if you have any questions, comments, feel free to contact us. That'll all be... Um, you know, we'll state all that information at the end here. Um, but if you are enjoying the podcast, if you want to help us out, um, but you maybe don't have the money to do that, um, or you don't want to, um, if you just subscribe, that helps out. That really helps the algorithm. Um, you know, it helps us know how many people are really interested in what we're talking about. Um, leaving reviews is really helpful. And of course you can always give us direct feedback on any social media platform or via email. And, uh, or if you want to mail us presents or something, yeah, not not something like anthrax, please. But um, <laughs> uh, yeah, if you want to get in touch with us, we'd love to have feedback. We want to make this show as useful as we can for everyone. So um, yeah, please, if you're interested, subscribe, leave a review, uh, get in t- get in touch with us. Yeah, with that, Ryan O and Abraham, we are out. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by ABAI's Disseminating Behavior Analysis Special Interest Group and our amazing listeners. If you like what you heard, consider heading to our Patreon account at patreon.com slash podcast. Anything helps, and we are continuously lining up perks and merch for our supporters. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.podcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is Abraham, Ryan O, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Brendan Bohr does our episode art. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.